Law 38. Think as you like, but behave like others. Judgment. If you make a show of going against the times, flaunting your unconventional ideas and unorthodox ways, people will think that you only want attention and that you look down upon them. They will find a way to punish you for making them feel inferior. It is far safer to blend in and nurture the common touch. Share your originality only with tolerant friends and those who are sure to appreciate your uniqueness. Transgression of the Law Around the year 478 B.C., the city of Sparta sent an expedition to Persia led by the young Spartan nobleman Pausanias, the city-states of Greece had recently fought off a mighty invasion from Persia, and now Pausanias, along with allied ships from Athens, had orders to punish the invaders and win back the islands and coastal towns that the Persians had occupied. Both the Athenians and the Spartans had great respect for Pausanias. He had proven himself as a fearless warrior with a flair for the dramatic. With amazing speed, Pausanias and his troops took Cyprus, then moved on to the mainland of Asia Minor known as the Hellespont and captured Byzantium, modern-day Istanbul. Now, master of part of the Persian Empire, Pausanias began to show signs of behavior that went beyond his normal flamboyance. He appeared in public wearing pomade in his hair and flowing Persian robes and accompanied by a bodyguard of Egyptians. He held lavish banquets, in which he sat in the Persian manner and demanded to be entertained. He stopped seeing his old friends, entered into communication with the Persian king Xerxes, and all in all affected the style and manner of a Persian dictator. Clearly power and success had gone to Pausanias' head. His army, Athenians and Spartans alike, at first thought this is a passing fancy. He had always been a bit exaggerated in his gestures, but when he flaunted his disdain for the Greek simple way of life and insulted the common Greek soldier, they began to feel he had gone too far. Although there was no concrete evidence for this, rumors spread that he had gone over to the other side and that he dreamed of becoming a kind of Greek Xerxes. To quell the possibility of mutiny, the Spartans relieved Pausanias of his command and called him home. Pausanias, however, continued to dress in the Persian style, even in Sparta. After a few months, he independently hired a trireme and returned to the Hellespont, telling his compatriots he was going to continue the fight against the Persians. Actually, however, he had different plans to make himself ruler of all Greece with the aid of Xerxes himself. The Spartans declared him a public enemy and sent a ship to capture him. Pausanias surrendered, certain that he could clear himself of the charges of treason. It did come out during the trial that during his reign as commander he had offended his fellow Greeks time and again, erecting monuments, for instance, in his own name, rather than those of the cities whose troops had fought alongside him, as was the custom. Yet Pausanias proved right. Despite the evidence of his numerous contacts with the enemy, the Spartans refused to imprison a man of such noble birth and let him go. Now thinking himself untouchable, 
Pausanias hired a messenger to take a letter to Xerxes, but the messenger instead took the letter to the Spartan authorities. These men wanted to find out more, so they had the messenger arrange to meet Pausanias in a temple where they could hide and listen behind a partition. What Pausanias said shocked them. They had never heard such contempt for their ways spoken so brazenly by one of their own, and they made arrangements for his immediate arrest. On his way home from the temple, Pausanias got word of what had happened. He ran to another temple to hide, but the authorities followed him there and placed sentries all around. Pausanias refused to surrender. Unwilling to forcibly remove him from the sacred temple, the authorities kept him trapped inside until he eventually died of starvation. Interpretation At first glance, it might seem that Pausanias simply fell in love with another culture, a phenomenon as old as time. Never comfortable with the asceticism of the Spartans, he found himself enthralled by the Persian love of luxury and sensual pleasure. He put on Persian robes and perfumes with a sense of deliverance from Greek discipline and simplicity. This is how it appears when people adopt a culture in which they were not raised. Often, however, there is also something else at play. People who flaunt their infatuation with a different culture are expressing a disdain and contempt for their own. They are using the outward appearance of the exotic to separate themselves from the common folk who unquestioningly follow the local customs and laws and to express their sense of superiority. Otherwise, they would act with more dignity, showing respect for those who do not share their desires. Indeed, their need to show their difference so dramatically often makes them disliked by the people whose beliefs they challenge, indirectly and subtly, perhaps, but offensively nonetheless. Cultures have norms that reflect centuries of shared beliefs and ideals. Do not expect to scoff at such things with impunity. You will be punished somehow, even if just through isolation, a position of real powerlessness. Many of us, like Pausanias, feel the siren call of the exotic, the foreign. Measure and moderate this desire. Flaunting your pleasure in alien ways of thinking and acting will reveal a different motive to demonstrate your superiority over your fellows. Keys to Power Wise and clever people learn early on that they can display conventional behavior and mouth conventional ideas without having to believe in them. The power these people gain from blending in is that of being left alone to have the thoughts they want to have and to express them to the people they want to express them to without suffering isolation or ostracism. Once they have established themselves in a position of power, they can try to convince a wider circle of the correctness of their ideas perhaps working indirectly. Make a show of blending in, even going so far as to be the most zealous advocate of the prevailing orthodoxy. If you stick to conventional appearances in public, few will believe you think differently in private. Do not be so foolish as to imagine that in our own time the old orthodoxies are gone. Jonas Salk, for instance, thought science had gotten past politics and protocol, and so, in his search for a polio vaccine, 
he broke all the rules, going public with the discovery before showing it to the scientific community, taking credit for the vaccine without acknowledging the scientists who had paved the way, making himself a star. The public may have loved him, but scientists shunned him. His disrespect for his community's orthodoxies left him isolated, and he wasted years trying to heal the breach and struggling for funding and cooperation. The logical extension of this law is the invaluable ability to be all things to all people. When you go into society, leave behind your own ideas and values and put on the mask that is most appropriate for the group in which you find yourself. People will swallow the bait because it flatters them to believe that you share their ideas. They will not take you as a hypocrite if you are careful, for how can they accuse you of hypocrisy if you do not let them know exactly what you stand for? Nor will they see you as lacking in values. Of course you have values, the values you share with them while in their company. Law 39. Stir up waters to catch fish. Judgment. Anger and emotion are strategically counterproductive. You must always stay calm and objective. But if you can make your enemies angry while staying calm yourself, you gain a decided advantage. Put your enemies off balance Find the chink in their vanity through which you can rattle them and you hold the strings. Observance of the Law By the late 1920s, Haile Selassie had nearly achieved his goal of assuming total control over Ethiopia, a country he felt needed strong and unified leadership. As regent to the Empress Zauditu, stepdaughter of the late queen and heir to the throne, Selassie had spent several years weakening the power of Ethiopia's various warlords. Now, only one real obstacle stood in his way, the empress and her husband, Ras Gugsa. Selassie knew the royal couple hated him and wanted to get rid of him. So, to cut short their plotting, he made Gugsa the governor of the northern province of Begameder, forcing him to leave the capital, where the empress lived. For several years, Gugsa played the loyal administrator, but Selassie did not trust him. He knew that Gugsa and the Empress were plotting revenge. As time passed and Gugsa made no move, the chances of a plot only increased. Selassie knew what he had to do, draw Gugsa out, get under his skin, and push him into action before he was ready. For several years, a northern tribe, the Azibu Galas had been in virtual rebellion against the throne, robbing and pillaging local villages and refusing to pay taxes. Selassie had done nothing to stop them, letting them grow stronger. Finally, in 1929, he ordered Ras Gugsa to lead an army against these disobedient tribesmen. Gugsa agreed, but inwardly he seethed. He had no grudge against the Azibu Galas and the demand that he fight them hurt his pride. He could not disobey the order, but as he worked to put together an army, he began to spread an ugly rumor that Selassie was in cahoots with the Pope 
and planned to convert the country to Roman Catholicism and make it a colony of Italy. Goose's armies swelled, and some of the tribes from which his soldiers came secretly agreed to fight Selassie. In March of 1930, an enormous force of 35,000 men began to march, not on the Azibu Gallus, but south, toward the capital of Addis Ababa. Made confident by his growing strength, Gugsa now openly led a holy war to depose Selassie and put the country back in the hands of true Christians. He did not see the trap that had been laid for him. Before Selassie had ordered Gugsa to fight the Azibu Gallus, he had secured the support of the Ethiopian church. And before the revolt got underway, he had bribed several of Gugsa's key allies not to show up for the battle. As the rebel army marched south, airplanes flew overhead, dropping leaflets announcing that the highest church officials had recognized Selassie as the true Christian leader of Ethiopia, and that they had excommunicated Gugsa for fomenting a civil war. These leaflets severely blunted the emotions behind the Holy Crusade, and his battle loomed, and the support that Gugsa's allies had promised him failed to show up. Soldiers began to flee or defect. When the battle came, the rebel army quickly collapsed. Refusing to surrender, Ras Gugsa was killed in the fighting. The empress, distraught over her husband's death, died a few days later. On April 30th, Selassie issued a formal proclamation announcing his new title, Emperor of Ethiopia. Interpretation Holly Selassie always saw several moves ahead. He knew that if he let Ras Gugsa decide the time and place of the revolt, the danger would be much greater than if he forced Gugsa to act on Selassie's terms. So, he goaded him into rebellion by offending his manly pride, asking him to fight people he had no quarrel with on behalf of a man he hated. Thinking everything out ahead, Selassie made sure that Gugsa's rebellion would come to nothing and that he could use it to do away with his last two enemies. This is the essence of the law. When the waters are still, your opponents have the time and space to plot actions that they will initiate and control. So stir the waters, force the fish to the surface, get them to act before they are ready. Steal the initiative. The best way to do this is to play on uncontrollable emotions, pride, vanity, love, hate. Once the water is stirred up, the little fish cannot help but rise to the bait. The angrier they become the less control they have, and finally they are caught in the whirlpool you have made, and they drown. Keys to Power Angry people usually end up looking ridiculous, for their response seems out of proportion to what occasioned it. They have taken things too seriously, exaggerating the hurt or insult that has been done to them. They are so sensitive to slight that it becomes comical how much they take personally. More comical still is their belief that their outbursts signify power. The truth is the opposite. Petulance is not power. It is a sign of helplessness. People may temporarily be cowed by your tantrums, but in the end, they lose respect for you. They also realize 
They can easily undermine a person with so little self-control. If a person explodes with anger at you, and it seems out of proportion to what you did to them, you must remind yourself that it is not exclusively directed at you. Do not be so vain. The cause is much larger, goes way back in time, involves dozens of prior hurts, and is actually not worth the bother to understand. Instead of seeing it as a personal grudge, look at the emotional outburst as a disguised power move, an attempt to control or punish you, cloaked in the form of hurt feelings and anger. This shift of perspective will let you play the game of power with more clarity and energy. Instead of overreacting and becoming ensnared in people's emotions, you will turn their loss of control to your advantage. You keep your head while they are losing theirs. Once you train yourself not to take matters personally and to control your emotional responses, you will have placed yourself in a position of tremendous power. Now you can play with the emotional responses of other people. Stir the insecure into action by impugning their manhood and by dangling the prospect of an easy victory before their faces. With the arrogant, too, you can appear weaker than you are, taunting them into a rash action. Law 40. Despise the free lunch. Judgment. What is offered for free is dangerous. It usually involves either a trick or a hidden obligation. What has worth is worth paying for. By paying your own way, you stay clear of gratitude, guilt, and deceit. It is also often wise to pay the full price. There is no cutting corners with excellence. Be lavish with your money and keep it circulating, for generosity is a sign and a magnet for power. Money and Power In the realm of power, Everything must be judged by its cost, and everything has a price. What is offered for free or at bargain rates often comes with a psychological price tag. Complicated feelings of obligation compromises with quality the insecurity those compromises bring on and on. The powerful learn early to protect their most valuable resources, independence and room to maneuver, by paying the full price, they keep themselves free of dangerous entanglements and worries. Being open and flexible with money also teaches the value of strategic generosity, a variation on the old trick of giving when you are about to take. By giving the appropriate gift, you put the recipient under obligation. Generosity softens people up to be deceived by gaining a reputation for liberality, you win people's admiration while distracting them from your power plays. By strategically spreading your wealth, you charm the other courtiers, creating pleasure and making valuable allies. Look at the masters of power, the Caesars, the Queen Elizabeths, the Michelangelos, the Medicis, not a miser among them. Even the great con artists spend freely to swindle. Tight purse strings are unattractive, 
When engaged in seduction, Casanova would give completely not only of himself, but of his wallet. The powerful understand that money is psychologically charged and that it is also a vessel of politeness and sociability. They make the human side of money a weapon in their armory. For everyone able to play with money, thousands more are locked in a self-destructive refusal to use money creatively and strategically. These types represent the opposite pole to the powerful, and you must learn to recognize them, either to avoid their poisonous natures or to turn their inflexibility to your advantage. The Greedy Fish The greedy fish take the human side out of money. Cold and ruthless, they see only the lifeless balance sheet, viewing others solely as either pawns or obstructions in their pursuit of wealth. They trample on people's sentiments and alienate valuable allies. No one wants to work with the greedy fish, and over the years they end up isolated, which often proves their undoing. The Bargain Demon Powerful people judge everything by what it costs, not just in money, but in time, dignity, and peace of mind. And this is exactly what bargain demons cannot do. Wasting valuable time digging for bargains, they worry endlessly about what they could have gotten elsewhere for a little less. On top of that, the bargain item they do buy is often shabby. Perhaps it needs costly repairs or will have to be replaced twice as fast as a high-quality item. The costs of these pursuits, not always in money, though the price of a bargain is often deceptive, but in time and peace of mind, discourage normal people from undertaking them. But for the bargain demon, the bargain is an end in itself. These types might seem to harm only themselves, but their attitudes are contagious. Unless you resist them, they will infect you with the insecure feeling that you should have looked harder to find a cheaper price. Don't argue with them or try to change them. Just mentally add up the cost in time and inner peace, if not in hidden financial expense, of the irrational pursuit of a bargain. The Sadist Financial sadists play vicious power games with money as a way of asserting their power. They might, for example, make you wait for money that is owed you, promising that the check is in the mail. Or, if they hire you to work for them, they meddle in every aspect of the job, haggling and giving you ulcers. Sadists seem to think that paying for something gives them the right to torture and abuse the seller. They have no sense of the courtier element in money. If you are unlucky enough to get involved with this type, accepting a financial loss may be better in the long run than getting entangled in their destructive power games. The indiscriminate giver. Generosity has a definite function in power. It attracts people, softens them up, makes allies out of them but it has to be used strategically with a definite end in mind. Indiscriminate givers, on the other hand, are generous because they want to be loved and admired by all, and their generosity is so indiscriminate and needy that it may not have the desired effect. 
If they give to one and all, why should the recipient feel special? Attractive as it may seem to make an indiscriminate giver your mark, in any involvement with this type, you will often feel burdened by their insatiable emotional needs. Transgression of the Law In the early 18th century, no one stood higher in English society than the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough. The Duke, having led successful campaigns against the French, was considered Europe's premier general and strategist. And his wife, the Duchess, after much maneuvering, had established herself as the favorite of Queen Anne, who became ruler of England in 1702. In 1704, the Duke's triumph at the Battle of Blenheim made him the toast of England, and to honor him, the Queen awarded him a large plot of land in the town of Woodstock, and the funds to create a great palace there. Calling his planned home the Palace of Blenheim, the Duke chose as his architect the young John Van Brew, a kind of Renaissance man who wrote plays as well as designed buildings. And so construction began in the summer of 1705, with much fanfare and great hopes. Van Brew had a dramatist's sense of architecture. His palace was to be a monument to Marlborough's brilliance and power, and was to include artificial lakes, enormous bridges, elaborate gardens, and other fantastical touches. From day one, however, the Duchess could not be pleased. She thought Van Brew was wasting money on yet another stands of trees. She wanted the palace finished as soon as possible. The Duchess tortured Van Brew and his workmen on every detail. She was consumed with petty matters, although the government was paying for Blenheim. She counted every penny. Eventually, her grumbling about Blenheim and other things, too, created an irreparable rift between her and Queen Anne, who, in 1711, dismissed her from the court, ordering her to vacate her apartments at the royal palace. When the Duchess left, fuming over the loss of her position and also of her royal salary, she emptied the apartment of every fixture down to the brass doorknobs. Over the next ten years, work on Blenheim would stop and start, as the funds became harder to procure from the government. The Duchess thought Van Brew was out to ruin her. She quibbled over every carload of stone and bushel of lime, counted every extra yard of iron railing or foot of wainscot, hurling abuse at the wasteful workmen, contractors, and surveyors. Marlborough, old and weary, wanted nothing more than to settle into the palace in his last years, but the project became bogged down in a swamp of litigation, the workmen suing the Duchess for wages, the Duchess suing the architect right back. In the midst of this interminable wrangling, the Duke died. He had never spent a night in his beloved Blenheim. After Marlborough's death, it became clear that he had a vast estate, worth over two million pounds, more than enough to pay for finishing the palace. But the Duchess would not relent. She held back Van Brew's wages as well as the workmen's, and finally had the architect dismissed. The man who took his place finished Blenheim in a few years, following Van Brew's designs to the letter. Van Brew died in 1726, 
locked out of the palace by the Duchess, unable to set foot in his greatest creation. Foreshadowing the Romantic movement, Blenheim had started a whole new trend in architecture, but had given its creator a 20-year nightmare. Interpretation For the Duchess of Marlborough, money was a way to play sadistic power games. She saw the loss of money as a symbolic loss of power. With Van Brew, her contortions went deeper still. He was a great artist, and she envied his power to create, to attain a fame outside her reach. She may not have had his gifts, but she did have the money to torture and abuse him over the pettiest details, to ruin his life. This kind of sadism, however, bears an awful price. It made construction that should have lasted ten years take twenty. It poisoned many a relationship, alienated the Duchess from the court, deeply pained the Duke, who wanted only to live peacefully in Blenheim, created endless lawsuits, and took years off Van Brew's life. Finally, too, posterity had the last word. Van Brew is recognized as a genius, while the Duchess is forever remembered for her consummate cheapness. The powerful must have grandeur of spirit. They can never reveal any pettiness. And money is the most visible arena in which to display either grandeur or pettiness. Best spend freely, then, and create a reputation for generosity, which in the end will pay great dividends. Never let financial details blind you to the bigger picture of how people perceive you. Their resentment will cost you in the long run. And if you want to meddle in the work of creative people under your hire, at least pay them well. Your money will buy their submission better than your displays of power. Law 41. Avoid stepping into a great man's shoes. Judgment. What happens first always appears better and more original than what comes after. If you succeed a great man or have a famous parent, you will have to accomplish double their achievements to outshine them. Do not get lost in their shadow or stuck in a past not of your own making. Establish your own name and identity by changing course. Slay the overbearing father, disparage his legacy, and gain power by shining in your own way. Observance of the Law Alexander the Great had a dominant passion as a young man, an intense dislike for his father, King Philip of Macedonia. He hated Philip's cunning, cautious style of ruling, his bombastic speeches, his drinking and whoring, and his love of wrestling and of other wastes of time. Alexander knew he had to make himself the very opposite of his domineering father. He would force himself to be bold and reckless. He would control his tongue and be a man of few words, and he would not lose precious time in pursuit of pleasures that brought no glory. Alexander also resented the fact that Philip had conquered most of Greece. My father will go on conquering till there is nothing extraordinary left for me to do, he once complained, while other sons of powerful men were content to inherit wealth and live a life of leisure. Alexander wanted only to outdo his father to obliterate Philip's name from history by surpassing his accomplishments. 
Alexander itched to show others how superior he was to his father. A Thessalian horse dealer once brought a prize horse named Bucephalus to sell to Philip. None of the king's grooms could get near the horse. It was far too savage, and Philip berated the merchant for bringing him such a useless beast. Watching the whole affair, Alexander scowled and commented, what a horse they are losing for want of skill and spirit to manage him. When he had said this several times, Philip finally had enough and challenged him to take on the horse. He called the merchant back, secretly hoping his son would have a nasty fall and learn a bitter lesson. But Alexander was the one to teach the lesson. Not only did he mount Bucephalus, he managed to ride him at full gallop, taming the horse that would later carry him all the way to India. The courtiers applauded wildly, but Philip seethed inside, seeing not a son but a rival to his power. Alexander's defiance of his father grew bolder. One day the two men had a heated argument before the entire court, and Philip drew his sword as if to strike his son. Having drunk too much wine, however, the king stumbled. Alexander pointed at his father and jeered, Men of Macedonia, see there the man who is preparing to pass from Europe to Asia? He cannot pass from one table to another without falling. When Alexander was eighteen, a disgruntled courtier murdered Philip. As word of the regicide spread through Greece, city after city rose up in rebellion against their Macedonian rulers. Philip's advisers counseled Alexander, now the king, to proceed cautiously to do as Philip had done and conquer through cunning. But Alexander would do things his way. He marched to the furthest reaches of the kingdom, suppressed the rebellious towns, and reunited the empire with brutal efficiency. As a young rebel grows older, his struggle against the father often wanes, and he gradually comes to resemble the very man he wanted to defy. But Alexander's loathing of his father did not end with Philip's death. Once he had consolidated Greece, he set his eyes on Persia, the prize that had eluded his father, who had dreamed of conquering Asia. If he defeated the Persians, Alexander would finally surpass Philip in glory and fame. Alexander crossed into Asia with an army of 35,000 to face a Persian force numbering over a million. Before engaging the Persians in battle, he passed through the town of Gordium. Here, in the town's main temple, there stood an ancient chariot tied with cords made of the rind of the cornel tree. Legend had it that any man who could undo these cords, the Gordian knot, would rule the world. Many had tried to untie the enormous and intricate knot, but none had succeeded. Alexander, seeing he could not possibly untie the knot with his bare hands, took out his sword and with one slash cut it in half. This symbolic gesture showed the world that he would not do as others, but would blaze his own path. Against astounding odds, Alexander conquered the Persians. Most expected him to stop there. It was a great triumph, enough to secure his fame for eternity. But Alexander had the same relationship to his own deeds as he had to his father. His conquest of Persia represented the past, and he wanted never to rest on past triumphs or to allow the past to outshine the present. He moved on to India, extending his empire beyond all known limits. 
Only his disgruntled and weary soldiers prevented him from going further. Interpretation Alexander represents an extremely uncommon type in history, the son of a famous and successful man who manages to surpass the father in glory and power. The reason this type is uncommon is simple. The father most often manages to amass his fortune, his kingdom, because he begins with little or nothing. A desperate urge impels him to succeed. He has nothing to lose by cunning and impetuousness and has no famous father of his own to compete against. This kind of man has reason to believe in himself, to believe that his way of doing things is the best, because, after all, it worked for him. When a man like this has a son, he becomes domineering and oppressive, imposing his lessons on the son who is starting off life in circumstances totally different from those in which the father himself began. The sons of such men tend to become cowed and cautious, terrified of losing what their fathers have gained. The son will never step out of his father's shadow unless he adopts the ruthless strategy of Alexander. Disparage the past, create your own kingdom, put the father in the shadows instead of letting him do the same to you. If you cannot materially start from ground zero, it would be foolish to renounce an inheritance you can at least begin from ground zero psychologically by throwing off the weight of the past and charting a new direction. Alexander instinctively recognized that privileges of birth are impediments to power. Be merciless with the past then, not only with your father and his father, but with your own earlier achievements. Only the weak rest on their laurels and dote on past triumphs. In the game of power, there is never time to rest. Keys to Power Power depends on the ability to fill a void, to occupy a field that has been cleared of the dead weight of the past. Only after the father figure has been properly done away with will you have the necessary space to create and establish a new order. There are several strategies you can adopt to accomplish this. Perhaps the simplest way to escape the shadow of the past is simply to belittle it, playing on the timeless antagonism between the generations, stirring up the young against the old. For this, you need a convenient older figure to pillory. John F. Kennedy knew the dangers of getting lost in the past. He radically distinguished his presidency from that of his predecessor, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and also from the preceding decade, the 1950s, which Eisenhower personified. Kennedy, for instance would not play the dull and fatherly game of golf, a symbol of retirement and privilege and Eisenhower's passion. Instead, he played football on the White House lawn. In every aspect, his administration represented vigor and youth, as opposed to the stodgy Eisenhower. Kennedy had discovered an old truth. The young are easily set against the old, since they yearn to make their own place in the world and resent the shadow of their fathers. Never let yourself be seen as following your predecessor's path. If you do, you will never surpass him. You must physically demonstrate your difference by establishing a style and symbolism that sets you apart. When General Douglas MacArthur assumed command of American forces in the Philippines during World War II, an assistant handed him a book 
containing the various precedents established by the commanders before him, the methods that had been successful for them. MacArthur asked the assistant how many copies there were of this book. Six, the assistant answered. Well, the general replied, you get all those six copies together and burn them, every one of them. I'll not be bound by precedence. Any time a problem comes up, I'll make the decision at once, immediately. Adopt this ruthless strategy toward the past, burn all the books, and train yourself to react to circumstances as they happen. You may believe that you have separated yourself from the predecessor or father figure, but as you grow older, you must be eternally vigilant, lest you become the father you had rebelled against. Finally, plenitude and prosperity tend to make us lazy and inactive. When our power is secure, we have no need to act. This is a serious danger, especially for those who achieve success and power at an early age. You must be prepared to return to square one psychologically, rather than growing fat and lazy with prosperity. Pablo Picasso could deal with success, but only by constantly changing the style of his painting, often breaking completely with what had made him successful before. How often our early triumphs turn us into a kind of caricature of ourselves. Powerful people recognize these traps, like Alexander the Great, they struggle constantly to recreate themselves. The father must not be allowed to return. He must be slain at every step of the way. Law 42. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Judgment. Trouble can often be traced to a single strong individual, the stirrer, the arrogant underling, the poisoner of goodwill. If you allow such people room to operate, others will succumb to their influence. Do not wait for the troubles they cause to multiply. Do not try to negotiate with them. They are irredeemable. Neutralize their influence by isolating or banishing them. Strike at the source of the trouble, and the sheep will scatter. Observance of the Law Near the end of the 6th century B.C., the city-state of Athens overthrew the series of petty tyrants who had dominated its politics for decades. It established instead a democracy that was to last over a century, a democracy that became the source of its power and its proudest achievement. But as the democracy evolved, so did a problem the Athenians had never faced— how to deal with those who did not concern themselves with the cohesion of a small city surrounded by enemies, who did not work for its greater glory, but thought of only themselves and their own ambitions and petty intrigues. The Athenians understood that these people, if left alone, would sow dissension, divide the city into factions, and stir up anxieties, all of which could lead to the ruin of their democracy. Violent punishment no longer suited the new, civilized order that Athens had created. Instead, the citizens found another, more satisfying and less brutal way to deal with the chronically selfish. Every year, they would gather in the marketplace and write on a piece of earthenware, an ostracon, the name of an individual they wanted to see banished from the city for ten years. If a particular name appeared on 6,000 ballots, 
that person would instantly be exiled. If no one received 6,000 votes, the person with the most ostraca recording his name would suffer the 10-year ostracism. This ritual expulsion became a kind of festival. What a joy to be able to banish those irritating, anxiety-inducing individuals who wanted to rise above the group they should have served. In 490 BC, Aristides, one of the great generals of Athenian history, helped defeat the Persians at the Battle of Marathon. Meanwhile, off the battlefield, his fairness as a judge had earned him the nickname The Just. But as the years went by, the Athenians came to dislike him. He made such a show of his righteousness, and this, they believed, disguised his feelings of superiority and scorn for the common folk. His omnipresence in Athenian politics became obnoxious. The citizens grew tired of hearing him called the just. They feared that this was just the type of man, judgmental, haughty, who would eventually stir up fierce divisions among them. In 482 BC, despite Aristides' invaluable expertise in the continuing war with the Persians, they collected the ostraca and had him banished. After Aristides' ostracism, the great general Thermistocles emerged as the city's premier leader, but his many honors and victories went to his head, and he too became arrogant and overbearing, constantly reminding the Athenians of his triumphs in battle, the temples he had built, the dangers he had fended off. He seemed to be saying that without him the city would come to ruin, and so, in 472 B.C., Themistocles' name was filled in on the ostraca, and the city was rid of his poisonous presence. The greatest political figure in 5th century Athens was undoubtedly Pericles. Although several times threatened with ostracism, he avoided that fate by maintaining close ties with the people. Perhaps he had learned a lesson as a child from his favorite tutor, the incomparable Damon who excelled above all other Athenians in his intelligence, his musical skills, and his rhetorical abilities. It was Damon who had trained Pericles in the arts of ruling. But he, too, suffered ostracism, for his superior airs and his insulting manner toward the commoners stirred up too much resentment. Toward the end of the century, there lived a man named Hyperbolus, most writers of the time describe him as the city's most worthless citizen. He did not care what anyone thought of him and slandered whomever he disliked. He amused some, but irritated more. In 417 BC, Hyperbolus saw an opportunity to stir up anger against the two leading politicians of the time, Alcibiades and Nicias. He hoped that one of the two would be ostracized and that he would rise in that man's place. His campaign seemed likely to succeed. The Athenians disliked Alcibiades' flamboyant and carefree lifestyle and were wary of Nicias's wealth and aloofness. They seemed certain to ostracize one or the other, but Alcibiades and Nicias, although they were otherwise enemies, pooled their resources and managed to turn the ostracism on Hyperbolus instead. His obnoxiousness, they argued, could only be terminated by banishment. Earlier sufferers of ostracism had been formidable, powerful men. Hyperbolus, however, was a low buffoon 
and with his banishment the Athenians felt that ostracism had been degraded, and so they ended the practice that for nearly a hundred years had been one of the keys to keeping the peace within Athens. Interpretation The Athenians sensed the dangers posed by asocial behavior and saw how such behavior often disguises itself in other forms. The holier-than-thou attitude that silently seeks to impose its standards on others, overweening ambition at the expense of the common good, the flaunting of superiority, quiet, scheming, terminal obnoxiousness. Some of these behaviors would eat away at the city's cohesion by creating factions and sowing dissension. Others would ruin the democratic spirit by making the common citizen feel inferior and envious. The Athenians did not try to re-educate people who acted in these ways, or to absorb them somehow into the group, or to impose a violent punishment that would only create other problems. The solution was quick and effective. Get rid of them. Within any group, trouble can most often be traced to a single source, the unhappy, chronically dissatisfied one who will always stir up dissension and infect the group with his or her ill ease. Before you know what hit you, the dissatisfaction spreads. Act before it becomes impossible to disentangle one strand of misery from another or to see how the whole thing started. First, recognize troublemakers by their overbearing presence or by their complaining nature. Once you spot them, do not try to reform them or appease them. That will only make things worse. Do not attack them, whether directly or indirectly, for they are poisonous in nature and will work underground to destroy you. Do as the Athenians did. Banish them before it is too late. Separate them from the group before they become the eye of a whirlpool. Do not give them time to stir up anxieties and sow discontent. Do not give them room to move. Let one person suffer so that the rest can live in peace. Keys to Power In the past, an entire nation would be ruled by a king and his handful of ministers. Only the elite had any power to play with. Over the centuries, power has gradually become more and more diffused and democratized. This has created, however, a common misperception that groups no longer have centers of power, that power is spread out and scattered among many people. Actually, however, power has changed in its numbers, but not in its essence. There may be fewer mighty tyrants commanding the power of life and death over millions, but there remain thousands of petty tyrants ruling smaller realms and enforcing their will through indirect power games charisma, and so on. In every group, power is concentrated in the hands of one or two people, for this is one area in which human nature will never change. People will congregate around a single strong personality like stars orbiting a sun. To labor under the illusion that this kind of power center no longer exists is to make endless mistakes, waste energy and time, and never hit the target. Powerful people never waste time. Outwardly, they may play along with the game, pretending that power is shared among many, but inwardly, they keep their eyes on the inevitable few in the group who hold the cards. These are the ones they work on. When troubles arise, they look for the underlying cause, 
the single strong character who started the stirring and whose isolation or banishment will settle the waters again. In his family therapy practice, Dr. Milton H. Erickson found that if the family dynamic was unsettled and dysfunctional, there was inevitably one person who was the stirrer, the troublemaker. In his sessions, he would symbolically isolate this rotten apple by seating him or her apart from the others, if only by a few feet. Slowly, the other family members would see the physically separate person as the source of their difficulty. Once you recognize who the stirrer is, pointing it out to other people will accomplish a great deal. Understanding who controls the group dynamic is a critical realization. Remember, stirrers thrive by hiding in the group, disguising their actions among the reactions of others. Render their actions visible and they lose their power to upset. Finally, The reason you strike at the shepherd is because such an action will dishearten the sheep beyond any rational measure. When Hernando Cortez and Francisco Pizarro led their tiny forces against the Aztec and Incan empires, they did not make the mistake of fighting on several fronts, nor were they intimidated by the numbers arrayed against them. They captured the kings, Moctezuma and Atahulpa, Vast empires fell into their hands. With the leader gone, the center of gravity is gone. There is nothing to revolve around, and everything falls apart. Aim at the leaders, bring them down, and look for the endless opportunities in the confusion that will ensue. Law 43. Work on the hearts and minds of others. Judgment. Coercion creates a reaction that will eventually work against you. You must seduce others into wanting to move in your direction. A person you have seduced becomes your loyal pawn, and the way to seduce others is to operate on their individual psychologies and weaknesses. Soften up the resistant by working on their emotions, playing on what they hold dear and what they fear. Ignore the hearts and minds of others, and they will grow to hate you. Transgression of the Law Near the end of the reign of Louis XV, all of France seemed desperate for change. When the king's grandson and chosen successor, the future Louis XVI, married the 15-year-old daughter of the Empress of Austria, the French caught a glimpse of the future that seemed hopeful. The young bride, Marie Antoinette, was beautiful and full of life. She instantly changed the mood of the court, which was rank with Louis XV's debaucheries. Even the common people who had yet to see her talked excitedly of Marie Antoinette. The French had grown disgusted with the series of mistresses who had dominated Louis XV, and they looked forward to serving their new queen. In 1773, When Marie Antoinette publicly rode through the streets of Paris for the first time, applauding crowds swarmed around her carriage. How fortunate, she wrote her mother, to be in a position in which one can gain widespread affection at so little cost. In 1774, Louis XV died, and Louis XVI took the throne. As soon as Marie became queen, she abandoned herself to the pleasures she loved the most, 
ordering and wearing the most expensive gowns and jewelry in the realm, sporting the most elaborate hair in history, her sculpted coiffures rising as much as three feet above her head, and throwing a constant succession of masked balls and fets. All of these whims she paid for on credit, never concerning herself with the cost or who paid the bills. Marie Antoinette's greatest pleasure was the creation and designing of a private Garden of Eden at the Petit Trianon, a chateau on the grounds of Versailles with its own woods. The gardens at Petit Trianon were to be as natural as possible, including moss applied by hand to the trees and rocks. To heighten the pastoral effect, Marie employed peasant milkmaids to milk the finest-looking cows in the realm, Launderers and cheesemakers in special peasant outfits she helped design, shepherds to tend sheep with silk ribbons around their necks. When the queen inspected the barns, she would watch her milkmaid squeezing milk into porcelain vases made at the royal ceramic works. To pass the time, Marie would gather flowers in the woods around the Petit Trianon or watch her good peasants doing their chores the place became a separate world, its community limited to Marie's chosen favorites. With each new whim of Marie's, the cost of maintaining the Petit Trianon soared. Meanwhile, France itself was deteriorating. There was famine and widespread discontent. Even socially insulated courtiers seethed with resentment. The queen treated them like children. Only her favorites mattered, and these were becoming fewer and fewer. But Marie did not concern herself with this. Not once throughout her reign did she read a minister's report. Not once did she tour the provinces and rally the people to her side. Not once did she mingle among the Parisians or receive a delegation from them. She did none of these things because, as queen, she felt the people owed her their affection, and she was not required to love them in return. In 1784, the queen became embroiled in a scandal. As part of an elaborate swindle, the most expensive diamond necklace in Europe had been purchased under her name, and during the swindler's trial, her lavish lifestyle became public. People heard about the money she spent on jewels and dresses and masked dances, they gave her the nickname Madame Deficit, and from then on she became the focus of the people's growing resentment. When she appeared in her box at the opera, the audience greeted her with hisses. Even the court turned against her, for while she had been running up her huge expenditures, the country was headed for ruin. Five years later, in 1789, an unprecedented event took place, the beginning of the French Revolution. The queen did not worry. Let the people have their little rebellion, she seemed to think. It would soon quiet down, and she would be able to resume her life of pleasure. That year, the people marched on Versailles, forcing the royal family to quit the palace and take residence in Paris. This was a triumph for the rebels, but it offered the queen an opportunity to heal the wounds she had opened and establish contact with the people. The queen, however had not learned her lesson. Not once would she leave the palace during her stay in Paris. Her subjects could rot in hell for all she cared. In 1792, 
the royal couple was moved from the palace to a prison as the revolution officially declared the end of the monarchy. The following year, Louis XVI was tried, found guilty, and guillotined. As Marie Antoinette awaited the same fate, hardly a soul came to her defense. Not one of her former friends in the court, not one of Europe's other monarchs, who, as members of their own country's royal families, had all the reason in the world to show that revolution did not pay. Not even her own family in Austria, including her brother, who now sat on the throne. She had become the world's pariah. In October of 1793, she finally knelt at the guillotine, unrepentant and defiant to the bitter end. Interpretation From early on, Marie Antoinette acquired the most dangerous of attitudes. As a young princess in Austria, she was endlessly flattered and cajoled. As the future queen of the French court, she was the center of everyone's attention. She never learned to charm or please other people, to become attuned to their individual psychologies. She never had to work to get her way, to use calculation or cunning or the arts of persuasion, and like everyone who was indulged from an early age, she evolved into a monster of insensitivity. Marie became the focus of an entire country's dissatisfaction because it is so infuriating to meet with a person who makes no effort to seduce you or attempt to persuade you, even if only for the purpose of deception. And do not imagine that she represents a bygone era or that she is even rare. Her type is today more common than ever. Such types live in their own bubble. They seem to feel they are born kings and queens and that attention is owed them. They do not consider anyone else's nature, but bulldoze over people with the self-righteous arrogance of a Marie Antoinette. Pampered and indulged as children, as adults, they still believe that everything must come to them. Convinced of their own charm, they make no effort to charm, seduce, or gently persuade. In the realm of power, such attitudes are disastrous. At all times, you must attend to those around you, gauging their particular psychology, tailoring your words to what you know will entice and seduce them. This requires energy and art. The higher your station, the greater the need to remain attuned to the hearts and minds of those below you, creating a base of support to maintain you at the pinnacle. Without that base, your power will teeter, and at the slightest change of fortune, those below will gladly assist in your fall from grace. Keys to Power In the game of power, you are surrounded by people who have absolutely no reason to help you unless it is in their interest to do so. And if you have nothing to offer their self-interest, you are likely to make them hostile for they will see in you just one more competitor, one more waster of their time. Those that overcome this prevailing coldness are the ones who find the key that unlocks the stranger's heart and mind, seducing him into their corner, if necessary, softening them up for a punch. But most people never learn this side of the game. When they meet someone new, rather than stepping back and probing to see what makes this person unique, they talk about themselves, eager to impose their own willpower and prejudices. They argue, boast, and make a show of their power. They may not know it, 
but they are secretly creating an enemy, a resistor. Because there is no more infuriating feeling than having your individuality ignored, your own psychology unacknowledged. It makes you feel lifeless and resentful. Remember, the key to persuasion is softening people up and breaking them down, gently. Seduce them with a two-pronged approach, work on their emotions, and play on their intellectual weaknesses. Be alert to both what separates them from everyone else, their individual psychology, and what they share with everyone else, their basic emotional responses. Aim at the primary emotions, love, hate, jealousy. Once you move their emotions, you have reduced their control, making them more vulnerable to persuasion. Mao Zedong always appealed to popular emotions and spoke in the simplest terms. Educated and well-read himself, in his speeches he used visceral metaphors, voicing the public's deepest anxieties and encouraging them to vent their frustrations in public meetings. Rather than arguing the practical aspects of a particular program, he would describe how it would affect them on the most primitive, down-to-earth level. Do not believe that this approach works only with the illiterate and unschooled. It works on one and all. All of us are mortal and face the same dreadful fate, and all of us share the desire for attachment and belonging. Stir up these emotions and you captivate our hearts. Finally, learn to play the numbers game. The wider your support base, the stronger your power. Understanding that one alienated, disaffected soul can spark a blaze of discontent, Louis XIV made sure to endear himself to the lowest members of his staff. You, too, must constantly win over more allies on all levels. A time will inevitably come when you will need them. Law 44 Disarm and infuriate with the mirror effect. Judgment. The mirror reflects reality, but it is also the perfect tool for deception. When you mirror your enemies, doing exactly as they do, they cannot figure out your strategy. The mirror effect mocks and humiliates them, making them overreact. By holding up a mirror to their psyches, you seduce them with the illusion that you share their values. By holding up a mirror to their actions, you teach them a lesson. Few can resist the power of the mirror effect. Mirror Effects Preliminary Topology Mirrors have the power to disturb us. Gazing at our own reflection in the mirror, we most often see what we want to see the image of ourselves with which we are most comfortable. We tend not to look too closely, ignoring the wrinkles and blemishes. But if we do look hard at the reflected image, we sometimes feel that we are seeing ourselves as others see us, as a person among other people, an object rather than a subject. That feeling makes us shudder. We see ourselves, but from the outside, minus the thoughts, spirit, and soul that fill our consciousness. We are a thing. In using mirror effects, we symbolically recreate this disturbing power by mirroring the actions of other people, 
mimicking their movements to unsettle and infuriate them. Made to feel mocked, cloned, object-like, an image without a soul, they get angry. Or do the same thing slightly differently, and they might feel disarmed. You have perfectly reflected their wishes and desires. This is the narcissistic power of mirrors. In either case, the mirror effect unsettles your targets, whether angering or entrancing them, and in that instant, you have the power to manipulate or seduce them. The effect contains great power because it operates on the most primitive emotions. There are four main mirror effects in the realm of power. The neutralizing effect. This is the essence of the neutralizing effect. Do what your enemies do, following their actions as best you can, and they cannot see what you are up to. They are blinded by your mirror. Their strategy for dealing with you depends on your reacting to them in a way characteristic of you. Neutralize it by playing a game of mimicry with them. The tactic has a mocking, even infuriating effect. Most of us remember the childhood experience of someone teasing us by repeating our words exactly. After a while, usually not long, we wanted to punch them in the face. Working more subtly as an adult, you can still unsettle your opponents this way. Shielding your own strategy with the mirror, you lay invisible traps or push your opponents into the trap they planned for you. The Narcissus Effect Gazing at an image in the waters of a pond, the Greek youth Narcissus fell in love with it, and when he found out that the image was his own reflection and that he therefore could not consummate his love, he despaired and drowned himself. All of us have a similar problem. We are profoundly in love with ourselves, but since this love excludes a love object outside ourselves, it remains continuously unsatisfied and unfulfilled. The Narcissus effect plays on this universal narcissism. You look deep into the souls of other people, fathom their inmost desires, their values, their tastes, their spirit, and you reflect it back to them, making yourself into a kind of mirror image. Your ability to reflect their psyche gives you great power over them. They may even feel a tinge of love. This is simply the ability to mimic another person, not physically, but psychologically, and it is immensely powerful because it plays upon the unsatisfied self-love of a child. Normally, people bombard us with their experiences, their tastes. They hardly ever make the effort to see things through our eyes. This is annoying. But it also creates great opportunity. If you can show you understand another person by reflecting their inmost feelings, they will be entranced and disarmed, all the more so because it happens so rarely. No one can resist this feeling of being harmoniously reflected in the outside world, even though you might well be manufacturing it for their benefit and for deceptive purposes of your own. The Moral Effect the power of verbal argument is extremely limited and often accomplishes the opposite of what is intended. As Gracian remarks, the truth is generally seen, rarely heard. The moral effect is a perfect way to demonstrate your ideas through action. Quite simply, you teach others a lesson by giving them a taste of their own medicine. In the moral effect, you mirror what other people have done to you 
and do so in a way that makes them realize you are doing to them exactly what they did to you. You make them feel that their behavior has been unpleasant, as opposed to hearing you complain and whine about it, which only gets their defenses up. And as they feel the result of their actions mirrored back at them, they realize in the profoundest sense how they hurt or punish others with their unsocial behavior. You objectify the qualities you want them to feel ashamed of and create a mirror in which they can gaze at their follies and learn a lesson about themselves. This technique is often used by educators, psychologists, and anyone who has to deal with unpleasant and unconscious behavior. This is the teacher's mirror. Whether or not there is actually anything wrong with the way people have treated you, however, it can often be to your advantage to reflect it back to them in a way that makes them feel guilty about it. Hallucinatory Effect Mirrors are tremendously deceptive, for they create a sense that you are looking at the real world. Actually, though, you are only staring at a piece of glass, which, as everyone knows, cannot show the world exactly as it is. Everything in a mirror is reversed. When Alice goes through the looking glass in Lewis Carroll's book, she enters a world that is back to front, and more than just visually. The hallucinatory effect comes from creating a perfect copy of an object, a place, a person. This copy acts as a kind of dummy. People take it for the real thing because it has the physical appearance of the real thing. This is the preeminent technique of con artists, who strategically mimic the real world to deceive you. It also has applications in any arena that requires camouflage. This is the deceiver's mirror. <laughs> 